0: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Alice Sherman Simpson about the Winthrop Agreement. The United States is, as people like to say, a nation of immigrants. While acknowledging the fact that this is not entirely true, unless you count the crossing of what is now the Bering Strait 12,000 years ago as immigration, The experience of moving from Europe, Asia, Africa, and almost any other part of the globe one can touch is indeed sewn into the fabric of what makes the United States the richly, if not always comfortably, diverse and polyglot place that it is. Alice Simpson's new novel, The Winthrop Agreement, takes place during the height of the European immigration wave in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It begins with a young Jewish girl from the Russian Empire. I came to America. 1893. After what seemed an endless 14-day journey across the wave-tossed Atlantic in the belly of a filthy, overcrowded steamship, the first thing 16-year-old Rivka Milmanovich saw as she entered New York's harbor was the Statue of Liberty. She wept for having survived the voyage and the idea of a new life awaiting her in America. Jacob would be waiting for her on shore. She could hardly wait to see his smile, which made her breathless, and to tell him the news, she was pregnant. They had hardly begun their life together in Mariampolia, when he began talking about going to America. Not only was the 18-year-old Jacob the handsomest boy in her village, but also he could fix things. Anyone who needed anything repaired came to Jacob, even the Gentiles hired him, to mend their wagons, plows, pumps, and farm machinery. He had described to Rivka that in New York, the streets were paved with gold, and it was there he would make his fortune. They would have a home of their own in America, perhaps even a farm, which was not permitted to Jews in their Lithuanian shtetl. And now, please join me in welcoming Alice Sherman Simpson. Hi Alice, thank you for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Hi, it's nice to hear from you. I look forward to talking to you about my book and uh, whatever you'd like to know about me.
0: You're a woman after my own heart, a lifelong dancer. Tell us about your novel Ballroom and how you came to write fiction in the first place.
1: Well, you know, I began dancing when I was 60 at a a New York City ballroom. Uh, I took a lot of classes, and then I would go on Sunday nights to this ballroom on uh, Union Square. And then in 19... in 1992 I applied for a residency at Haystack Mountain School of Crafts on Deer Isle, Maine and I began creating artist books about dance. And my books were a unique niche and they attracted attention from museums and collectors and and ended up in almost 40 international collections and they're all about dance. They're uh, sculptural and hand-painted and hand-printed. And one particular book that I made in, I think it was 1994, uh, it was, it was a, a book which the pages were cut out figures dancing in a ballroom. And it included a, a one-page stories about six different dancers. And I had so much fun creating those characters, which were somewhat based on, On people that I had seen or danced with uh, in my experience at that New York City ballroom. But when I returned to New York after that residency, I started taking writing workshops and over the years developed this novel, which uh, was published to my great surprise by Harper Collins in 2015. And I was 72. It was absolutely felt like a miracle. And so um, one of the gifts I gave myself was private tango classes. <laughs> and I, I'm still taking them today. Uh, I dance once a week with a, uh, in private lessons in my home with, uh, with a tango dancer.
0: That is such a great story. Um, And what inspired The Winthrop Agreement, which is in a quite different genre from that first novel?
1: Well, I love looking at vintage photographs. And uh, online, I belong to a group called Vintage, Vintage History New York City. And one day I came across this photograph of a tenement on the Lower East Side. And it's just an extraordinary photo. I wish I could show it to you. It's the front stoop of a building, and there are three women standing in the. It's, oh, by the way, it's from 1910, and there are three women who are standing in the doorway. It looks like they're gossiping, and there are. There's a young man sitting on the top step in a bowler hat and an apron, but the thing that caught my eye was that in the front parlor window, you can just barely see this young girl and an infant sitting at the window looking out onto the street. And I just, I couldn't stop looking at that picture. I wondered if it was where my mother had grown up with her siblings at just about that time. And I just wondered who she was and what became of her. And that, this book, that was the beginning
0: Although the main story is Mimi's, I think you've just answered this, actually. The first person we meet is her mother, Rivka, uh, who is that young woman in the window, right?
1: Well, it could have been, it could be Rivka or it could be Mimi. It could be either one, actually.
0: So why did you start with Rivka, even though the main story is Mimi's? Yeah, that's a really
1: interesting question. I began the book writing about Mimi, and... When I started develop, developing her relationship with her mother, I, her mother took on this persona of this uh, disenchanted, exhausted, and hopeless person. Uh, it just went, that's how she developed. And the more I thought about why that had happened to her, I decided that I needed to go back in time and. So I decided to look at her journey to America. And so uh, the book begins in 1893. Um, also, my family, my cousins, none of us know much about our family's early years in New York. Our parents, uh, my aunts and uncles, my mother, wanted they wanted to forget. They, they wanted to get out of the low east tenement in which they lived. They wanted to be educated and move uptown. They wanted to be American. And while my grandparents were Orthodox, my mother and her siblings,, and, you know, they, they just really wanted to be part of Amer- be American. And so they chose to be more secular and left their religious practices behind. So that was, that was the start of, of this story.
0: What's about Rivka as a fifteen, sixteen-year-old girl? We get a sense right away as to what brings her to America. I mean, even in the first two paragraphs, she's in love. But who is she as a personality at that point in time, in 1893? What is she hoping for?
1: I thought about, I thought about that, and I didn't want to get too caught up in the whole history of the of the family. But I felt she was. She was quite young and quite naive, and living in a small rural village. She does love to dance. I always, I always try to slip dancing into my books. (laughs) Um, And I think she's she kind of blindly follows Jacob uh, to the new country. Uh, He he believes that that there's going to be this great future there. He, He tells her that when she comes in within a month, he's going to have a home and a farm, and he has no idea what's waiting for him in, the, in this new country, and, and certainly Rivka doesn't either as well, and they, I think they believe the streets were paved with gold.
0: Uh, Yeah, she says that, in fact, Uh, and a lot of people did believe that, Uh, I suspect a lot of people still believe that in, you know, maybe not in exactly the same way, but differently phrased. Um, Her parents argued against the marriage, Um, and Rivka has hardly made it through Ellis Island when she discovers that her parents may have known what they were talking about. So what happens right there at the beginning that sets her off on a new course? Well,
1: Jacob is nowhere to be found. He is not waiting for her uh, when her boat comes into Ellis Island. And uh, apparently this was not uncommon. Frequently, uh, one member or another of a family would arrive in New York to find that the person who was waiting for them never showed up. She would never know what happened to Jacob and his with his winning smile, and uh, and it, it was a time when it would be impossible to find somebody. Uh, we sometimes forget what life was like in those days. There was no telephone or or you know internet or or phone books, and so it would be very easy to disappear in the new world of America. And. It's 1893, and it won't be until 1910 that the Jewish newspaper, The Forward, begins running the Gallery of Missing Husbands column. Uh, Although she does, uh, there's a charming section where she, uh, Riska, seeks out a psychic to no avail.
0: Yeah, it's... um... I mean, we forget. I mean, people changed their names, and people had their names changed for them because the uh, staff on Ellis Island felt that it would be more appropriate for them to have names that they could spell. So you could just kind of get lost. How does Rivka cope uh, with her new reality? Uh, How does it change her? Well, she she is
1: pretty. She's lost. She New York is not what she imagined. She is overwhelmed by the crowds and the the city itself. And uh, she fortunately has this address for her friend, her childhood friend, Lottie Aaron. And so she searches for her and finds her living on Delancey Street. And the two of them, and Lottie, Explains, you know, life in New York to her and helps her to find work in the factories. And I think the experience is is overwhelming for Rivka. She does not cope well with this new situation, and she's quite depressed and unhappy.
0: It's hard to imagine, really, how... A person, I mean, obviously, some people are more re- resilient than others. But you know, this is a 16-year-old girl who has left work on a farm, which I'm sure was very hard and burdensome at times. But her family was there, and you know, there was a, she always had a roof over her head. She had food and so on. And now she's in the the slums of New York, and we really do get a sense in those early chapters of what that was like for people when they came in. So, tell us a little bit about what her life is like in New York, uh, especially once the baby is born
1: it's I did so much research on on what life was like, and there was so much material to draw upon and uh,
0: uh,
1: I wanted to talk about what factory work was like and uh, Lottie takes her under her wing and helps her to find work at one of the factories then. It was the Heine and fox cap factory where, where immigrants would work, work, create, sort of ironic, they were sewing golf and yachting caps. And the conditions were just dreadful. They, they were charged fees. They had to pay to use their Singer sewing machines. They had to pay for thread and the pressing irons that they used. And they worked sometimes up to twelve hours a day, and they would earn like four and a half dollars for six days work. And and then they on top of that, they would take work home and sew so through the night. And Riska, in order to survive, and, and she knew she was pregnant and she had to pay her share with with Lottie and also Gave up for a midwife for uh, for the birth of her baby, and and it was really difficult. And after Mimi was born, she had to leave Mimi with neighbors um, who who ran a bakery for long, long hours. So uh, I, I think Mimi, Mimi or Miriam at the time she was quite deprived of of her mother's care, and. Rivka was exhausted at the end of the day. I don't think she had anything to give at the end. And I think she was, she was quite depressed about this living condition. It was, there were no child labor laws or any labor laws at all, for that matter, and even small children work. But she was determined that Mimi would go to school, and so she took on as much work as she could. Uh, It was terrible. the the description of factory work is really was just it was quite disturbing to me and I just couldn't even imagine what it was like. The articles uh, about the Triangle Shirt Factory fire are just incredible to read.
0: Yes, it really was a dreadful situation um, for so many people. Lottie's marriage. uh, Lottie's. I'm sorry. Lottie is married when we meet her, um, and her marriage could be considered a little more successful than Rivka's, but actually not by much. What happens there at the beginning?
1: Well, Lottie's living on Delancey Street, and she's living in a one-room walk-up on the fifth floor, and there are hundreds of residents living in one-room apartments, and they all they had was a bed and a table and a sink. There was no electricity, no hot water, no washing machines. There were outhouses, five store floors below on the street. And uh, uh, I suppose Lottie's marriage, you know might have been more successful, but she was abandoned by her husband as well. He, he went out one day for the newspaper and never returned. And she runs an ad in the Jewish Forward in that, the Gallery of Missing Husbands, which is really fascinating. Um, uh, I wrote down, I wrote down her ad, her ad, the ad that she plays to share with you. It's Yitzhak Ahrens, 18 years old, from Mariam Pole, Russia, Poland, umbrella peddler, 5 foot 11 inches with brown hair and missing the end of his left thumb. <laughs> That's an actual uh, ad that was run uh, in the foreword during that time. But she, like like uh, Rivka, she never finds uh, Yitzhak.
0: No, she never does. She's determined, though, uh, to get out of the sweatshops, no matter what. How does she manage that?
1: Yes. she, she Lottie is a wonderful – I really love uh, Lottie. She loves numbers, and she – she even keeps a little notebook and pencil and she keeps track of all her expenses. And she is determined to be a bookkeeper to get away from the factory conditions because she really suffers claustrophobia in those conditions with the doors and windows were locked and went summer and winter and they were not even allowed to go to the bathroom where there was no water available. So Lottie, was able to take classes uh, on the Lower East Side to study bookkeeping and stenography. And she she works at it day, nights, and weekends. And she makes her way out of the, the Lower East Side.
0: Let's switch and talk about Mimi now. Um, as I mentioned, she's the, the sort of central character of the story. And she grows up in this very harsh existence with a mother who's exhausted. And, you know, it's it's hard even to imagine what it would be like to work those very long hours and then come home to a child with no one else to help you except your friend, who's also working extraordinary hours and studying on the side and so on. So we, we understand why Rivka is not handling it well. Um. But, what is it like for Mimi? How does she manage to hold on to her dreams as a young girl?
1: That was a good question.
0: <laughs> she Mimi, I think
1: Mimi's a little bit like me in in certain respects. Her imagination is is really vivid. and she's very curious. and she observes everything. She notices everything. And those those allow her to dream. And she has this I don't know how she is able to have this strong determination to succeed despite her mother. I think that Lottie offers her a lot of strength. She's a loving figure and she, she really feeds and encourages Mimi as, uh, um, as she's developing. And I think Lottie reminds Rivka of the dream she, she once had to make clothes one day and, you know, uh, but she's not able to, to deal with, uh, with her own dreams. One day, um, Lottie arrives with potato sacks uh, and suggests that Rifka and Mimi make a curtain to hide their bed when the customers she sends them arrive, And that's the beginning of this business that the, the, the mother and daughter built together.
0: At 15, uh, which is about the same age that her mother uh, married and then ran off and was eventually abandoned uh, within the year, Mimi runs into Frederick Winthrop. Um, We don't want to go into him too much, probably, because he's sort of the... He's another central uh, character in the story, let's say that. Uh, But we do know that he's not a very nice guy. And Mimi, at 15 does not see that, uh, which is not too surprising again. What do we need to know about him, and how does he court Mimi? Well, there are three Winthrop
1: brothers. Uh, Jonathan is a renowned portrait painter. Thomas, who's a year younger than John, uh, Jonathan, is a very successful Beaux-Arts architect who's building mansions on Upper Fifth Avenue near Central Park. And the youngest of the three Winter brothers by 30 years. Uh, Frederick is a change-of-life child. He is a bully and thief, and he's expelled from numerous schools. He, loved, he sets fires, and he likes to steal valuable things from, from friends and family. And n- now he's 30, and he's turned his sights on young girls, and he's serendipitously meets Miriam in the park one day, and the she's so unsophisticated. She's easily seduced by, well, he's good-looking, and he's sophisticated and quite charming.
0: Uh, yes, indeed. Now, by means we're not going to divulge, uh, Mimi be, is able to start a dress uh, design business. And for her, fashion is an art form. So talk a little bit about her gifts and how she turns them into a means of supporting herself.
1: I felt that Mimi has a curiosity and a certain awareness of the world beyond the Lower East Side. She loves and appreciates beautiful fabrics and the details of well-made clothes that she notices on the streets and in magazines. And she has a really discerning eye for color. She has an intuitive understanding about how each of her customers should dress or the people in her life and what colors and fabric will bring out their individual beauty. And she wears her own creations
0: with great style. Yes, we haven't mentioned it, but she's quite beautiful. And even more than beautiful, she is vivacious. Early on in what we might call this second part of her life, uh, she developed several close friendships. One is with Lawrence Loft. Who is he, and how do they become friends? This, that's a good question because when I was writing this book, I felt that Mimi was
1: she wanted to be part of society. And that would have been impossible. So I had to just think about, who her friend? Who what friends would be available to her as she develops as a character? And it it was surprising where this took me. Uh, one is you know is she meets Lawrence Lost. He's a young man with quite elegant taste, similar to her own. He is charmed by her grace and her flair and potential. I don't think she is as aware of it as he is. And they form a a really close bond. And he helps her to develop her social skills. And then he begins to introduce her to New York society. And um, I really love their relationship and their friendship.
0: Uh, Yes, I really did, too. Uh, She also makes friends with the Corsino brothers, uh, Frank and Anthony, who are very different in social status. But they become close friends as well. Tell us about them. Well, I don't want to give away too much about
1: the Corsino brothers, but uh, superficially, they're a de- they were delightful. To, I can say they were delightful to create, create and write about. Uh, I came Again, I came upon photographs online of Italian immigrants of the period and imagined their characters from those images. I do that frequently when I write. Um, I love finding photographs to help me to, to define characters. Uh, Frank and Anthony are Italian immigrants, and they're furniture makers with large, warm-hearted families living on Mulberry Street, which uh, is the, or was the Italian section of downtown New York. And Frank is a, he's a giant of a man with wide cheekbones and a strong jaw and a heavy stubble and thick mustache. He's rough around the edges, but he has a warm and really caring nature And his cheerful younger brother, Anthony, who's shorter and slimmer and more clean-shaven with one of those old waxed handlebar mustaches,
0: uh,
1: Tony, he he doesn't speak because he just doesn't want to. And I thought they were, I really loved whenever they appeared. I wish they could have. I could have done more with them. The the book could have been 10,000 pages (laughs) if I continued with with all the characters in the book, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, books have a tendency to do that if you don't ever (laughs) get very strict with the characters. And my publisher kept saying, cut, cut,
1: cut. (laughs) So I had to, to, uh, you know,
0: what do they call kill your darlings? Right, yeah, that's always tough. So, uh, as you mentioned, Mimi would like to be part of high society, which is a bit of a stretch for her, uh, given where she's come from. Uh, but as her business becomes more successful, she does begin dressing high society ladies, and she has she develops a relationship with Alice Winthrop. Who is she?
1: When Lottie goes to work as a bookkeeper to the Winthrop family, who are very, very wealthy, uh, it's a wealthy, fictitious uh, family, she brings business to Rivka and Mimi from Uptown. And the Uptown Winthrop women and their friends are, are very uh, interested in the clothes that Mimi can, uh, she starts off by doing uh, alterations, but soon she begins making suggestions that they really appreciate. And Alice Winthrop is the wife of the, the oldest of the three Winthrop brothers, the portrait painter. Um, And she is a, what I call a petite force, with not much affection for her wicked young brother-in-law, Frederick, she suspects him of many misdeeds and she's a real threat to him. And um, she suspects him uh, in the disappearance of young women and showgirls. And so she, she's a force to be reckoned with.
0: What would you like people to take away from the Winthrop Agreement?
1: Hmm. I really want readers to see the world through Mimi's eyes, to understand her view, and, and to enjoy watching her develop from this naive young girl to, to a sophisticated and confident young woman. And, and I hope that they want her to succeed and that they care about her. And Not all of my characters in any of my books are all that likable. I always remember reading Elizabeth uh, <laughs> Excuse me, Elizabeth Strout's book, Olive Kittredge. And I remember I really disliked Olive. I intensely disliked her throughout the book. I found her judgmental and opinionated. She was really irritating. And when I finished the book, I realized I was just like Olive Kittredge. And so when I write, I search for my character's flaws that make them human. And I like complicated characters and risk is angst and impatience. Lottie's idiosyncrasies, how Matthew's, I'm sorry, how Mimi's son Matthew develops, uh, what influences him and what makes de- Frederick so detestable. Those were one challenges that, that I hope my my readers will uh, enjoy and appreciate and and think about and talk about.
0: And what of you? Are you already working on a new novel?
1: I am, and you will love the story, I think. (laughs) Can you give us a hint? Well, it takes, it goes, this is, uh, uh, the time is the present. Uh, The location is New York City. Uh, A former ballerina in the New York City Ballet who is recently widowed after a 50 year rebound marriage begins studying tango with a boorish, quarrelsome, and quite demanding young instructor. And in the intimacy of their weekly tango lessons, which take place over several summer months, he challenges her to confront truths about her life. And with her, Within this emotional relationship, they they find truth and acceptance. And it's I am writing six to eight hours a day. I am just lost in the world of my character and her these tango lessons. And I'm three quarters of the way through this next book.
0: That sounds wonderful. I will definitely keep an eye open for it and I wish you all success in uh, finishing it. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Alice.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you and talk with you and thank you so much and I hope your uh, listeners will be interested enough in the Winthrop Agreement to to purchase it at their local anywhere the place they buy books and, uh, and enjoy it.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Alice Sherman Simpson about the Winthrop Agreement. Find out more about her at alicesimpson.com. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com where I blog about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.